Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, it's Erica, and thanks for joining us for another episode of In Doubt. In today's episode, we've got Daniel here to discuss an age-old question with apologist, writer, and researcher Wesley Huff. So what's this age-old question we'll be talking about today? Can we trust the Bible? Can we read a book that is thousands of years old and trust it to give us guidance, advice, and an accurate history of ancient times? The short answer is yes, but how do we know that? If you're a lifelong Christian, a skeptic, or somewhere in between, this conversation on the trustworthiness of the Bible is one that you won't want to miss. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Daniel Markin, and I'm joined today by a friend of mine whose name is Wesley Huff. Wesley and I actually met recently at the Apologetics Canada Conference, which was in March, I believe, first week of March, before all of the COVID happenings began, uh, we actually got to see each other and meet each other in the flesh. So Wesley, good to have you joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Daniel. Uh, why don't you begin, just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and uh, what you're doing right now with your time as far as uh, uh, your ministry, but also your education. Yeah, so I live in Toronto, in Canada. Uh, I'm out here. I live with my wife and and my son. He's one years old and we are expecting uh, another baby girl in October. So excited about that. I also, thank you very much. I also work with Power to Change, which is a student ministry and has contact at 60 university and colleges across Canada. And I work for uh, an apologetics initiative of Power to Change called Ultimate Questions. And our goal at Ultimate Questions is to provide credible answers uh, to life's ultimate questions in order to point to the one who is the ultimate answer. And so I I travel, I speak, I write with them, uh, speaking at campuses uh, across this this country. And I'm also an associate with Apologetics Canada. And so uh, occasionally I hop on the AC podcast, uh, do some some stuff with uh, the guys there. And then in terms of my education, I'm currently a full-time PhD student at the University of Toronto's Wycliffe College in the area of biblical studies. So I'm, I'm partway through that, just um, trekking along in order to get as much information under my belt so that I can spread it to the masses. And that's part of the reason that we want to have you on is because you are diving right now to like an expertise level on the biblical scriptures. And so could you just share what exactly are like the, the what what you're diving right into? Because anytime you you slap a PhD on onto the front of your name, it means that you're an expert in something that no one else in the world is an expert on. So could you share with us a little bit of what consumes your time and what's like the a, as fine point as you can, your PhD? Yeah, for all the listeners out there, PhD stands for permanent head damage. So the longer you do it, uh, the more you're doing to yourself. So, you know, get, getting there, uh, I, I routinely forget things. So I think that's a sign of progress, right? Uh, what I'm studying is the early transmission of the New Testament text. So 
basically you go from the first century when these books that you find in in your bible in the that second half what we call the new testament when they were written and then the history of how those spread throughout the ancient world how they were copied and copied and copied and spread all over the place across the known world in the centuries following the time when they were written so the second the third the fourth centuries and i look into the writing communities that developed these texts so who were these individuals uh, why despite the fact that a, a large majority of them are the lower classes within society they're largely illiterate communities they're largely on the fringes in terms of gender dynamics power dynamics and economic dynamics, why do they become such prolific copiers of written documents? And actually, uh, eventually, within a, a few decades of the original writings, start to outnumber secular writings or, or non-Christian writings throughout the ancient world. So I study these, these writing communities within these first few centuries, and particularly how the text of what we call the Bible was spread throughout the ancient world. And what made you decide to to study that specific aspect? Like, what was it that made you super interested in that? Yeah, you know what? When I really started to journey in my faith, when I started to ask the questions of why I believed what I believed, I started to, to come into a question about some of these origin narratives of the Bible. And once I started to solidify those for myself and interact with people of other worldview perspectives, I found that that was a common narrative. It didn't matter who I was talking to, whether they were Muslim or Mormon or atheist, agnostic, Jehovah's Witness. Time and time again, it seemed to come back to the fact that they would say, you know what, Wes, that sounds great in terms of your, your apologetic, your defense, your answer for the Christian worldview that you hold, but you're, you're basing all of that on this book the Bible, on the Christian scriptures, and you can't trust that. All you have is a translation of a translation of a translation. All you have are error-written copies. You can't even know that what you have is what the original authors wrote, and even then, it's full of all these contradictions. And so I, I took that objection seriously. I said, you know what? If true, yes, that is a major problem for Christianity because I find my foundation in this guy, Jesus, and that guy, Jesus, his central story is found in the Bible. And so maybe you could argue that I jumped a, a little too far down that rabbit hole, uh, but that is what really started to interest me. And the more I studied, the more I just was fascinated with the origins of how these communities started to copy and spread these texts throughout the ancient world. Now, a lot of these discussions you had with Muslim friends and things, did that part of that have to do with your upbringing? And I know this because I know you weren't born in Canada, and I know that you're a missionary kid. Yeah, I was actually, I was born uh, at a very young age. I don't know if the listeners can hear that in my voice, but I was, in fact, born at a very young age. And like most people, my story starts in Pakistan. <laughs> so I was born in, in Multan, Pakistan. My parents were missionaries there. Uh, I also spent a, a portion of my childhood in, in the Middle East, in the country of Jordan. And so, yeah, to a large degree, that, that did impact how I, I went about this journey. If for no other reason, then having this background in living in majority Muslim countries uh, gave me an experience to be able to dialogue specifically with, with Muslims. 
uh, to be able to interact, I, I think, uh, in a way that was unique to uh, the, the worldview conversations that I was having, because I had that background in understanding not only what Islam was, but firsthand experience with being a minority religious position in a, a setting like that. So, so that, that did play a big part into it to some degree. But at the exact same time, you know, th these were questions that I, as someone who was raised in the Christian faith, truly had and was also curious about. Right. Well, why don't we jump in and I'm going to start you off with a just here's a softball question for you. All right. What is the Bible? Yeah, as much as that's a softball question, I think it's a fascinating question because it's a common question. Uh, and if you go to, uh, you know, we all know that the main arbiter of truth is Google. <laughs> There's uh, an organization that tracks some of the questions that, that people ask on Google. And in 2019, according to this poll, the second most common theological question asked was, what is the Bible? In fact, according to the study, that question was asked a staggering 1.8 million times per month in 2019. What is the Bible? And so as much as, yeah, uh, it's a softball question, Daniel, a lot of people are asking that question. And when we interact with people and, you know, maybe they, uh, they raise objections to the Christian faith and they say, you know, you can't trust the Bible. If we press into those questions, we find out they're not entirely sure what the Bible is because a lot of us aren't entirely sure what the Bible is. What we're talking about when we talk about the Bible is not one book as much as it's 66 books written over a period of about 1500 years across three different continents by close to 40 different authors in three different languages. So there are two major languages, Greek and Hebrew, and then there's one minor language, Aramaic. There are about 12 chapters in whole throughout the Bible that are in that language, Aramaic. And so even though we have, you know, our Bible in a very tidy form today, you know, I can look over to my bookshelf and see uh, a number of Bibles. Some of them have thumb indexing on the pages and have nice leather-bound covers. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky like that. It has a history and a long progression as to what it is and how it came together, those 66 books. And so it spans genres, it spans uh, ideas and concepts. You have poetry, you have history, you have narrative, you have philosophy and biography there's all sorts of components too and if i can add to that too wesley like a lot of these components my understanding is in the secular world it's viewed as a very profound book of poetry it's viewed as a very profound narrative it's viewed as quite a profound book of wisdom as well like this isn't just some sort of uh lightweight book a lot of secular scholars will look at this thing and say this is quite a piece of work it's it's, it's quite formidable as a an ancient document. Yeah, and I mean, that's a, that's a good point, because if you look at the history, particularly of the modern Western world, its foundational document is the biblical New Testament. I mean, you can read, there's a, a secular historian, Tom Holland. Uh, last year, he came out with this great book called Dominion. And what he does, even as someone who's not a believer, is he tracks through how the Christian worldview and the Bible being a large component of that has influenced 
our modern world. He looks at things uh, like human value, like law, like uh, just some of the things we, we presuppose uh, about you know, our, our judicial system, uh, about uh, human rights and freedoms, uh, about the way that we operate within the Western world. In fact, he, he describes it as, um, he uses this, this illustration of the, when Chernobyl, when that nuclear reactor exploded, for weeks afterwards, people were walking around and breathing in all of this radioactive material and they didn't even know it for weeks on end. And he says, we're breathing in the impact of the Judeo-Christian worldview and the influence of the Bible. And we often don't even know that that's what it's doing. So the Bible is a profound, like you said, uh, book in terms of the way that it impacts the world around us. Yeah. Well, and on a, a small scale, like you can see on certain parliament buildings, right? It'll say, in God we trust, or, or things in, in the name of God, right? On the, or in God, that's on the American dollar bills, right? But the Western world it has historically been largely influenced by that Judeo-Christian worldview, which, again, it's funny because secular worldview will, will now say, hey, that's, a, that's a, a dated way of living, not knowing that they've actually borrowed everything from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yeah, even the simple idea that every human being has intrinsic value by nature of being a human being, that is not an idea that you get from secular humanism. That's not an idea that I think you really get in very many other worldviews because it's grounded in the idea that we are created in the image of God and therefore we have value by existing. That is a Christian, that's a Judeo-Christian idea. And so actually one of the things that Tom Holland says in so many words is he says, you know, if you look at any other worldview, uh, whether it's, you know, atheism, uh, secularism, Islam, uh, all of these other things, if you look at them and you, you read the way that they, they operate, you'll see that they're based on some level of survival of the fittest to some degree or another. What would be an example? What would be an example of one of those? Well, obviously, within secular humanism, within the, the narrative of atheism and and evolution, there's an aspect of the survival of the fittest. Uh, but even within, I, I would argue, within the Islamic religion, uh, there's a concept that you know you have certain individuals on top, and they are meant to rule, and then you almost have a hierarchy. You know, there there are uh, classes within. Um, society within humanity. You have Muslims who are uh, the greatest of all people, as, as the Quran says, and then you have individuals who are non-Muslims. You have dhimmis who are categorized as anyone who, who doesn't believe, and then you have kafirs, and this is a category of what, I guess, in English language you would, or the Christian language, we would call idolaters. And they are, they are lower, you know, in uh, majority Muslim countries, those who are not Muslims, particularly Christians and Jews, they pay a separate tax, which is called the jizya. And this has been true throughout Islamic history. And they pay that tax as a recognition that they are lower as non-Muslims. And so in a lot of ways uh, throughout Islamic history, it has not been true that everyone is completely equal. And what Tom Holland says is that while 
it doesn't matter what worldview perspective you hold. You know, if you go to the ancient Near East, you see uh, the Hammurabi Code where you have the king and the nobles on top, and then you can have this hierarchy of, of going lower and lower and lower, where at the very bottom you have individuals like slaves and women and uh, other ethnicities that were considered inferior. And those are all predicated on some idea of survival of the fittest. There are peoples who are higher within their value, within their ability to contribute to society, and then you have people who are lower. But what the narrative actually displays about Christianity is that it's unique because the fittest sacrifices himself for the survival of the weakest. It completely flips the narrative. And that's the, that's the gospel message that we hold as Christians, that unlike the survival of the fittest narrative, the fittest... God himself, the second person of the Trinity, steps out of eternity into humanity, taking on human flesh, and sacrifices himself for the survival of the weakest. I think that's, that's a profound notion that we take for granted within our modern context as people who just, you know, the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights and Freedoms assumes that all people should be treated equally. Well, where do we get that assumption? The Bible. The Bible. Right. So I guess here's my question. We've basically said the Bible is 66 different books, many different authors over a long period of time. Here's my devil's advocate, right? Okay, great. But that was 2,000 years ago that, that Jesus existed. And then you explained that a lot of those writings were accumulated over 1,500 years, right? So this is an old, old document. To what extent... Can we actually trust this Bible? And then to what extent is, is the Bible just kind of also kind of made up, right? Is this 100% trustworthiness or is it like 50%, you know, some of it's actual historical stuff, right? You can find Goliath's town, things like that, find his town of Gath. But can we trust this Bible? Yeah, so I, I think it depends on what we mean when we use the word trust. And so a formal definition of trust is simply a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. And so if we back up and we look at, you know, how do we, how do we establish a, a firm belief in the reliability, the truthfulness, and uh, the confidence that we have within a scripture? And I'm going to be using those two words interchangeably. The, the word Bible uh, isn't necessarily a biblical word, as much as the word scripture is a scriptural word if that makes any sense. But what I mean when I talk about the Bible or scripture is the 66 books of what we hold as the, the Bible. So one of the ways that we can answer this question is by asking, how do we know that what we have is what the original authors wrote? Because, like you said, we have a long span of time, 2,000 years in between us today and what the original authors wrote. And so how do we have confidence that what we have is, you know, what... Guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Jew, James. How do we know that this, in my modern day English translation, is what was written thousands of years ago in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever? Well, I think one of the profound ways that we can know that is because of exactly what my area of expertise focuses on, is the transmission of these documents. So very quickly and early on, Christians copied these books, these documents, and spread them throughout the ancient world because they wanted that message to get out. And there were two side effects of that. First, Christianity went everywhere really quickly. And second, 
what that meant is that you had copies of, say, the Gospel of John or the Epistle to the Romans or, you know, the, the Letter of Jude in North Africa and in Asia and in parts of Europe, as far as uh, Britain, within decades. And so not only did that create converts to Christianity all over the ancient world, but what it meant is that copies started to pop up all over the place. And we take that for granted too, Wesley, because we just think, well, nowadays you just you post a tweet, right? Everyone can see it around the world. You can post an article, everyone sees it instantaneously. But in the ancient world, people are walking everywhere. So to, to make that trek for some people to, to go all the way to, to England, right? If you're sharing that message, there's a good chance you're not coming back because of the type of journey it is. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and so you have... You know, you have these documents spread all over the place. And the side effects of, of that is that between the first and fourth centuries, you have hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of the Bible spread over the ancient world. And this number only grows as Christianity is decriminalized at the beginning of the fourth century. But what that means is that no single person or group could have ever controlled the text at any one single point in time because it was too spread out. So any accusation of, you know, this guy or this group or, uh, you know, this, this shadow agency uh, inserting doctrines into the Bible and adding the divinity of Christ or taking out, uh, you know, pantheism or something like that from the Bible is impossible because you had copies of these books in uh, North Africa and you had copies in parts of Asia, and you had copies throughout the Middle East and Europe. And, and so that disallowed any one single group or person to control the text. Yeah, you'd have to track down every single copy and make sure it's destroyed or changed, which, yeah, yeah, you're right. That would be an impossible task. Yeah, and then the second side effect of that is that now you have a whole lot of copies. And so what we are able to do now is we are able to look at all of those copies and compare them. Because here's the reality of any handwritten anything. Anytime you handwrite and copy something, you're going to make a mistake. It's just going to happen, especially when you're copying whole books. Now we type things now. And so some of that sort of copyist error is lost, but even typing. I mean, I, I try to record quotes all the time, and sometimes uh, I, you know, I, I make typist errors. Uh, I'm notorious for writing the as T-E-H or, you know, um, writing form instead of from. I do those things just naturally. Those are typist errors. And that's even worse when you're hand copying things. And so what happens is that no two manuscripts agree exactly in every letter just because you make mistakes. Now, the benefit of have, having more is that you can compare them. And the more you compare, the easier it is to see where the mistakes creep in, especially if you have copies from a long period of time. And we're talking the second century to the 16th century with the invention of the printing press. We have handwritten copies of the Bible, thousands of, tens of thousands of them. And so because of that, uh, although that's a common accusation against scripture, you know, well, all of, you know, you have all these error-ridden copies. Ironically, for individuals like myself who study this academically, the more error-ridden copies you have, the better it is. Because if you have only one copy, 
then you have to trust that whoever made that copy got it right. And you have nothing to compare it to. But if you have two copies, okay, well now you can compare and contrast. Or if you have three copies, more, more, more. If we're talking tens of thousands, we can see where certain readings creep into the text, where mistakes are made honestly or intentionally. And it allows us to really be able to pin with pinpoint accuracy to trace the original text back. Interesting. So as, as they're doing this then, why didn't they just go back and correct the mistake right away if they knew there was a mistake? So a lot of the time uh, they didn't know there was a mistake. So uh, l let me give you uh, a couple of examples uh, of these because there are all sorts of different types of what are called textual variances. So differences within the manuscript tradition. And um, a lot of these are done, you know, they're very honest mistakes. A simple explanation of one would be spelling differences. There was no standardization of spelling in Greek up until a certain point in time. In fact, that was true for English for a long time. There was no standardization until you had documents like dictionaries that started to come out. And so you could spell, say, the word problem with uh, two Bs or two Ms or one M uh, or what have you. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know that that word is problem if you read it, even if it has two Bs or one B. If you're a native English speaker, you can figure that out. But then there are other ones that uh, are a little bit different. So there's, there's one that you can actually find by looking at different English translations. Because if you open to 1 John 3, 1, in a King James version of the Bible, it will say this, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now, if you open a modern New International Version, an NIV, at that exact same passage, it will say this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Now, there's a difference between those two. It's subtle. You may not even have picked up on it. But it is the phrase, and such we are. Now. The reason that this is in the King James Version is because the King James was translated between uh, 1603 and 1611. And the available manuscript evidence that they have, the available editions of the first John that they had, did not have this phrase, and such we are, at first John 3.1. But when we started to, as time went on, between you know 1611 and 2020, we have, we've dug up far more and earlier copies of these documents. And so we can see that in our earliest manuscripts, this phrase, and such we are, is there. Now, how did it get eliminated? Well, the phrase, and such we are, is the Greek phrase, kai esmen. Well, the, a word immediately before, not to get too geeky, but the word immediately before that phrase is kleithomen. Now, they both end in M-E-N. And in Greek, it looks like M-E-N. And so if you were the scribe and you were reading and you got to the end of the sentence and it said kleithomen and you saw that M-E-N and then you wrote that down and then you came back to the manuscript and you saw the M-E-N of kaiesmen instead of the M-E-N of kleithomen, you could just continue on after there and completely eliminate that, that phrase. This is what's referred to as 
homoi teluton, which is just a, a big long Latin word that means similar endings. Now we do this all the time when we copy things, whether we know that it's called homoi teluton or not. Because I've done this where I've seen, uh, I'm copying something and I see the at the end of a sentence and then I go back and the next sentence also ends with the. And so I pick up from there and effectively eliminate that sentence. So that's what's going on in, in 1 John 3, 1. A manuscript was copied where the scribe saw the M-E-N of Clathomen, went back, mistakenly saw the M-E-N of Chiasmen, and then continued on in the sentence. And that manuscript was copied and copied and copied and copied and ended up in what's referred to as the majority text, the majority of manuscripts, which means that for a, a strain of copies, it effectively eliminated that, that phrase, and such we are. Now, there's no grand conspiracy by, say, the King James translators uh, of trying to eliminate the idea of sonship of God or confidence in that by taking out the phrase, and such we are. It's a completely understandable mistake. By looking at what's going on, we can see that mistake. You don't miss any major doctrine or teaching within Scripture by not having that phrase in there. But what it does is it shows us how we can figure out where these mistakes happen and how and when they happen and how we can remedy that. So, but it's by seeing and being able to compare all of these copies that we're able to do these types of things, whether it's spelling differences or whether it's homoteluton um, or what have you. So, Wesley, here's my question then. Do you feel... And I think it's a loaded question because yes, you do, but throw a percentage on how certain you are that these original manuscripts are as good as the manuscripts that we have today, that like the translations are, are so similar and so close. Are you, are you satisfied with how close those are? Yeah. So here I'll, I'll give you the answer that even the most skeptical of scholars will give you. Even the most skeptical of scholars will say, we are able to trace the text of the Bible back to 99% accuracy of what the original was. And that 1% that we don't know about, it's not a matter of, this is completely a mystery. It's, it's you know, we have no idea what could have been here. It's always a matter of one reading over another reading. And actually, if you look in your modern English translations, and you look at the bottom of the page, in an NIV or an ESV or a, a New King James Version or a NASB or an NET, you're going to see citation notes at the bottom of the page, which will explain that 1% to you. Nothing is hidden. We can have incredible confidence, unmatchable confidence, if we're talking about written documents from the ancient world, unmatchable confidence that what we have now is what the original authors wrote back then up until 99% of accuracy to what guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Jude, James, what they wrote. And like I said, that 1% isn't totally up in the air. It's a matter of one thing or another thing, and we're not hiding anything. If you're interested in those things, go to the bottom of the page, read where there may be a variation here or there, and how the translators of your modern English translation explain it. Well, that's fantastic. And Wesley, we could definitely keep going on for this. We're definitely going to have to do another episode. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for being a part of the program. And we look forward to being able to speak with you again.
Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to speaking once again. Thanks so much for joining us today for this episode, and thanks to Wesley for taking the time out of his busy schedule to chat with us. Hopefully this conversation has challenged your perspective and opinion of the accuracy of the Bible and how we can know that the book we have today is primarily unchanged since its creation. And if you'd like to hear more from Wesley, you can check out his website, wesleyhuff.com, or follow him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Don't miss next week's episode with Daniel and Carl Barnhill as they discuss what the future of the church will look like with the new COVID-19 reality. See you then. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 